Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. So I've been teaching a series of messages on love. Today will be my, my eighth message uh, in that series. God, the scripture tells us that God is love. And his love, it's, his love is absolutely amazing. It's bigger, it's stronger, it's more powerful, and much more inclusive than we ever imagined. But sadly, too many, too few people know it. Too many people are unaware of just how amazing God's extravagant love is. And for that reason, I'm taking time uh, over these, these past couple of months to teach on the topic. And I've got to tell you what, Scripture is filled with amazing verses um, about the love of God. And these are just a few that we've touched so far. We looked at Mark 12, 30 and 31. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Powerful words of Jesus in John 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples. If you love one another. We could, man, we could camp there for a long time and just emphasize that. And it would be good. We looked at Ephesians 3, 16 to 19, where Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. And he says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Awesome. Romans 8, 35 and 39 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That's in Christ Jesus our Lord. He could not qualify that statement any more completely. We are inseparable from his love. His love is inseparable for us, from us. That means on your best day, God loves you perfectly. It means on your worst day, he loves you perfectly. His love for you is unwavering. It's never changing. It's absolutely Unconditional. We haven't looked at it yet, but Scripture says that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. When we were his enemies, he loved us lavishly and extravagantly. How do you think he feels about us now that we're his sons and daughters? Inseparable from his love. Powerful verses. Then we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, maybe the, maybe the greatest exposition on the topic of love in all of Scripture. And it says, uh, Paul begins by saying, and now this really speaks to me, verse 3, it says, verse 2 rather, if I had the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Whew. The gifts are nothing. As awesome as they are, as necessary as they are, they're nothing compared to love. Oh my goodness. And then we looked at the great definition just the next verses down, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, so on and so on and so on. Powerful verses. And last week, um, we looked at 1 John 4, 18, where it tells us that there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears 
is not made perfect in love. And I spent, spent some time last week unpacking a thought that the Lord had dropped in my mind concerning the phrase, the fear of the Lord. And I think we've completely misunderstood that phrase in Scripture. In, in Proverbs 9.10, I think it is, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And most of us have interpreted that phrase to mean this, that if I'm afraid of God, that I will be wise, or wisdom will be available to me. And I took quite a bit of time last week to unpack that and tell you how that absolutely cannot possibly be the appropriate interpretation of that phrase. So I encourage you to take some time to look at last week's message. I think you'll find it uh, valuable and insightful. So can you see that the word, of, the word of God, Scripture is just filled with insight and profound truth concerning God and his love for us. So today, I want to continue on that theme by taking a look at, at Luke chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 21 and 22. You can follow along as I read. Verse 21 begins by saying, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And the voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Lord, I thank you for, the, for your word and for the truth that's in your word. Lord, I ask you to use me today to communicate your word to your people in a powerful and life-giving way. So, a little bit of context. Luke is the longest of the synoptic gospels, which include Matthew, Mark, Luke together. It's actually the longest book in the New Testament. Luke uses much of the same material as, Matt, as Mark and Matthew, but he adds his own distinctive flavor uh, to the story. It's a gospel marked by joy and by songs of praise and, and just seems to have a heavy uh, emphasis on, on relationships. Especially relationships that Jesus had with people that many would consider outcasts be, you know, in the culture of that day. Women or children. See, women were treated very differently back then. They were very much treated as second-class citizens in that culture, but not with Jesus. He treated them very differently. He loved them. He honored them. He respected them. He protected them. So people considered outcasts. Women, children, the poor, tax collectors. Few people were hated as much as tax collectors. And Jesus invites one of them to be his disciple and becomes an apostle. Pretty amazing. And then the Samaritans. And I've spent some time when we were going through the Gospel of John. They were the outcast of outcasts. If there was one people group that the Gentiles disliked even, that the Jews disliked even more than the Gentiles, it was the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans. But Luke spent some time showing how Jesus cultivated a relationship with the Samaritan people. Luke presents this gospel from a Gentile perspective, not from a Hebrew perspective. Luke's Gentile orientation is seen clearly in, in the fact that he traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam, whereas Matthew only takes it as far back as Abraham. 
He seldom uses any quotes from the Old Testament, and often he, he will translate Hebrew words that you'd find in Matthew and Mark. He trans them, translates them into their Greek equivalent uh, in his uh, gospel. Luke gives us the most details on the events leading up to the birth of Jesus, and as well as the early life of John the Baptist. And here in chapter 3, we see their paths cross. This is where, we, in a rather dramatic fashion, uh, the, the journey of Jesus and the journey of John the Baptist cross here in a significant way. John's baptizing people in the Jordan River, and Jesus comes to be baptized. That's the, uh, that's the confluence. That's the intersection. At first, John is quite reluctant uh, to baptize Jesus, but Jesus insists. This is how Matthew 3 describes it. This is John the Baptist speaking. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Could you imagine if Jesus came to you, right? Church service, you're baptizing people, and... You know, out by a river somewhere, a beautiful PEI, and suddenly Jesus comes up to you and says, I want you to baptize me. Would, wouldn't your reaction be just like John the Baptist? Are you kidding me? No, Jesus, you baptize me. How could I baptize you? He says, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Verse 15, Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. The message takes verse 15. I think it explains it nicely, that little uh, conversation between them. But Jesus insisted, do it. God's work, putting things right, all these centuries, is coming together right now in this baptism. So John did it. But it's what happened next that captures my attention today and is the focus of today's message. Verses 21 to 23. When all the people, this is from Luke 3, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was <coughs> baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now historically, we understand that Jesus is about 30 years old at this point. He's just about to, to start his public ministry. We know very little about him before this. We, we know the story that he's 12 years old and he's in the temple and, he, and the, the wisdom he has even as a 12-year-old is confounding some of the temple leaders and uh, he goes missing and his parents don't know about it. And so we know a little bit about that story, but aside from that, there's nothing else in Scripture that tells us what happened in the first 30 years of Jesus' life? Now, so what most of what we know about Jesus begins here at this baptism, and it moves forward from here. 
Now bear in mind, Jesus truly is our example in all things. He's our example in all things for life. He's our example for all things in ministry. Now, I've been here just a little over two years, but even if you've only come once in a while, you know that I've been driving home the point that our God is a relational God, that he's a loving God. And I think that point's driven home again in this text. I think there's a principle that's set here that would be good for us not to miss. I think a standard and a pattern is set in this amazing event. And I'll explain that in a minute. But let me talk about something else first. I want to talk about a topic. I want to discuss what I, what I call performance-based Christianity. Performance-based Christianity. I've touched on it in the past. Wayne Jacobson, in his wonderful book, He Loves Me, that we're going to have another book club on in January. In his book, He Loves Me, <clears throat> he uses a different phrasing than performance-based Christianity. He calls it Daisy Petal Christianity, right? He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. And this is kind of, this, this is how Jacobson describes performance-based Christianity. I got an A on my final exam, he loves me. Right? I failed my test, oh, he loves me not. I got a promotion at work, he loves me. <laughs> I got fired, he loves me not. Right? I bought a new house, a new car, a new computer, he loves me. Yeah? I've gone bankrupt, he loves me not. My church is growing. He loves me. People are leaving my church. He loves me not. And any of this sound familiar? <laughs> Basically, this is the mindset behind Peterson's Daisy Petal Christianity, what I like to call performance-based Christianity, is basically if I do good, God loves me. If I somehow fail, he doesn't love me. Meaning that God's love, from that mindset, that God's love is conditional, and his love is earned only by my good behavior. Now, this is the way of the world that we live in. Make, make no mistake. This is how the world operates. Our good behavior is rewarded in this world, and our bad behavior is punished. <clears throat> School, work, and even most churches, this is the way we operate. Good behavior is is, uh, has benefits to it, and bad behavior has consequences to it. The world is absolutely a performance-based. The problem is, is that we assume that this is how God works too, because every other arena in our life, including the church, operates on a performance base. We think that this is how God relates to us, and it's not. I'm here to tell you some good news today. This is not how he relates to us. His ways truly are not our ways. They are vastly higher than our ways. <clears throat> now, I place much of the blame for this mindset, for this mentality of a performance-based Christianity. I place it firmly at the doorstep of organized religion. I do. And especially at, at the doorstep of its leaders. Strong emphasis among Christian leaders has placed, um, there's been a strong emphasis placed upon performance-based activities within the church. Now, a lot of you guys are in church for a long time. You know this. You've experienced this. A lot of pressure for things like tithing or attendance on Sunday mornings or participation in church-sponsored programs. 
In many churches, those three things are required if you want to become a member in good standing. Right? You have to actually jump through the hoops before you can even identify yourself as belonging to the group. I so much appreciate that we have a very different approach uh, to our philosophy of ministry here. That first, We believe that first people belong. That's the starting point. And after they belong for a while, they begin to believe in the God that we believe in. And after having believed for a while, they become more like Jesus. The beginning part is belonging. The beginning part isn't conforming to some standard or some measure of performance that tells us whether or not you're worthy to be a member. Profound difference. Profound difference. So tithing, attendance, participation, all performance-based, all measurable, all driven by this mindset that bigger is better. And guys, I know lots of pastors, lots of years. Many of my brothers and sisters, they're driven by this mindset that bigger is better. I don't know. I don't know that bigger is better. I remember years ago I was having lunch with a with a group of pastors. There were about eight of us in a, in a restaurant. And it, it was a, around the, the first time I had gotten a cancer diagnosis. And I was going through treatments. And so one of the pastors there, in a rather condescending tone, sitting across from me, this is what he says. He says, Tom, tell us, what have you learned from having cancer? <laughs> Just like that. And I looked at him and I said, one of the things I've learned is that not all growth is good. <laughs> <laughs> Some growth, just cancer. It is. What are cancer cells? They're growing out of control in the body. And they do more harm than good. Bigger isn't always better. I'm not anti-big. I just want to be big if, if it's what God's doing. I think big is a horrible motivation to lead a group of people. Because the things that you'll do to get big are the things you have to do to stay big. And if you'll manipulate people to get bigger, you have to manipulate them to stay bigger. I don't do that. I hate manipulation. I'd rather just be honest. And if God breathes on it and there's life, people show up. And if he doesn't, then we'll all go do something else. But if I've got to manipulate you to get this thing to be bigger, I refuse to do it. It's just not going to happen. Pastors of small churches want the validation that they assume will come from having big churches. Every small church pastor I know wants this. He wants a big church. And that's why you, if you want to make some money, write a book on how to grow your church in five easy steps. And it'll sell like hotcakes. I can, I can go on, there's a website called Christian Book distributors. You go on their website, I'll bet you, you could go there right now and buy 20 books on church growth. Somebody has some measure of success, their church grows, he writes a book, makes a ton of bucks off of writing that book, but it doesn't mean it's transferable. Having lived in a variety of different places uh, from coast to coast in North America, I can tell you that what works on one coast doesn't work on the other. What works here doesn't work in the south. What works in the South absolutely doesn't work in New York City. It's not cookie cutter. It's not the way our God works. Here's the problem. Most pastors, they have a vision. And it's, usually it's a good thing. God gives them a vision for ministry. 
And they need people in the form of time, energy, and money to make that vision a reality. And sometimes people don't have that time. They don't have that energy. Well, they don't have that money. And so I'm not saying the vision is bad. I just think that is a problem when the methods to make the vision a reality look a whole lot more like capitalism than they do Christianity. I think that's a problem. And it's driven by this performance-based Christianity. Now, there's a current updated version uh, of this you know, that you could add to things like tithing or attendance or participation. And the, the updated version, making its round in Christian circles, its tenets include the sacred and untouchable icons of social justice, ministry to the poor, and intellectualism. Ooh, those are hot things. You want to have a now church? You want to have a happening church? You know, you want to really rally people? You want to guilt them and shame them into participation? Talk about... Talk, Talk about social justice, talk about ministry to the poor. How can you fight against those things, right? They're just the new weapons that the ringleaders use to whip the people uh, into obedience, actually. Do these things and you earn a seat at the spiritual cool kids table. Do these things and you're a real Christian. Do these things and you'll make a genuine difference. Do these things and God will really be happy with you. Now please, don't hear what I'm not saying this morning. These are all good things. I think that it's good to give. I believe it's good for us to gather together and worship. I think that some programs really are beneficial. I'm a big fan of true godly justice. And I love ministry to the lost, the sick, and the poor. All right, so what's your problem, Tom? This is my problem. My problem is when we use any of these activities, as good as they are, as a means to God. I'm a, I have a problem when we use these things and we communicate them to people and say, you need to do these things to have favor with God, to earn favor with God, to earn pleasure with God, to earn the love of God. As opposed to these activities being the fruit of an already well-established loving relationship with God. Now, it may seem like a subtle difference, but the difference is profoundly significant. If these good deeds are simply a modern-day list of do's and don'ts to earn God's favor, then we might as well all be Jews still under the law of Moses. Because what's the difference? They had to dot all the I's and cross all the T's and jump through all the hoops in order for God to be happy with them. And we've just created a new list. We've just created a new law. Say, so you have to do these things. <clears throat> when these works, even these good works, become a, mean, a means to God, then good has become enemy of best. Okay, let me give you some scripture to back this up. The church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, verses 1 to 5. This is what the angel of the church's Ephesus writes. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. These are the words of Jesus. These are the words of God. Verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. 
I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, and you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered, and you have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Wow. Now the church at Ephesus, they had good deeds. They had lots of good deeds. They had hard work. They had perseverance. They had discernment. They endured hardship. And it says they didn't quit. I know pastors that would give a limb to have a group of people like that in their church. Could you imagine the work you could accomplish, the buildings you could build, the programs, the outreach, feeding the poor? I mean, you could do stuff with an army of people with those kind of qualities, those kind of personality traits. But the scripture tells us they lack one thing. They've forsaken their first love. Well, who's their first love? What does scripture mean when it says that they've forsaken their first love? Well, Jesus answered it this way. When, when he was asked what was most important, Jesus gave this reply in Mark 12, 30 and 31. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. The second is this. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Ephesians did good, but they did it without God. Can you see that? They did the second commandment. They loved the neighbors as themselves. They had lots of good deeds, but they'd forsaken their first love. They remind me of the false disciples from Matthew chapter 7. This is what Jesus says in verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Whoa. They did good stuff too. They did good supernatural stuff. They prophesied, cast out demons. It says here they did many miracles. But like the Ephesians, they did it without God. They did it without relationship to God. When Jesus says, I never knew you, I've taught on this before, that word know is an is a intensely relational term. He was saying, we weren't friends. We didn't know each other. We weren't tight. We weren't close. We weren't in relationship. You did all this stuff in my name, but you did it without me. Just like the church at Ephesus. The Ephesians of Revelation 2 and the false disciples of Matthew 7 were both victims of what I believe is performance-based Christianity. And that's not why Jesus came. The primary purpose of the incarnation is not social justice. The primary purpose of the incarnation is not saving the environment or the unborn. It's not promotion of a conservative or a liberal agenda. It's not signs and wonders or even ministry to the lost, the sick, and the poor. The primary purpose of the incarnation is the restoration of relationship between the Trinity and humanity. That's why Jesus came, between God and people. 
My friends, listen to me today. We need, we need to return to our first love. And then, from that place of having been loved, let's love others. Once we've experienced the touch of God, the embrace of God, the love of God, once we've been loved by Him, then yes, let's love others. My concern is this. We live in a world driven. We live in a church age driven by our performance base that has skipped the first commandment and majored in the second commandment. Is it any wonder that so many Christians are burnt out and leaving organized religion? Is it any wonder at all? I, in the last couple of years, I've spoken to more people who've been Christians for 25 years or longer who have told me, I'm done with church. I'm done. I'll do something else. I'll meet with a few friends, but I can't be part of the machinery anymore. They feel like they've been chewed up and spit out. They've served and served and served and served. They got nothing left to give. They're done with it. I can't tell you how many. I got an email this week. I get newsletters from different organizations, the Barnard Group. They, they do statistical data on the church. Now, most of it is driven by data that they use in the, in the U.S., but, but I, think it's, I think it applies here, too. They said that in the last decade, nearly 30 million Christians have left the church. In the last 10 years, 30 million, 30 million have left the church. If I'm running a business and I lose 30 million customers, i got to ask some hard questions. There's a problem, right? 30 million in the last decade? Look, some of them might be backsliding, but 30 million? It's not 30 million people backsliding. The system is broken. It's horribly broken. And we've got to look at it with new eyes. We've got to do things differently because we're killing people. We're burning people out. I suspect that most of these 30 million people are burnt out on a performance-based Christianity. Okay. So what has this got to do with Luke chapter 3? <laughs> I think it's got everything to do with Luke chapter 3. At Jesus' baptism, we see the Trinity represented. We see Jesus, the Word made flesh dwelling among us, the Holy Spirit in bodily form as a dove descending upon him, and we have the audible voice of God the Father. And what does the Father say? In Luke 3.22, this is what he says. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You're my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Why is this significant? Why is this phrase significant? Because Jesus hadn't done anything yet. He hadn't done anything yet. He hadn't, he hadn't performed in any way, shape, or form. He hadn't preached one sermon. He hadn't multiplied food to feed the hungry. He hadn't healed any sick people. He hadn't raised any dead people. He hadn't made any disciples. He hadn't saved the lost. He hadn't cast out any demons yet. He hadn't gone to the cross yet, and he hasn't, hadn't rose from the dead himself yet. He hadn't done anything. Jesus hadn't done nothing. There was no performance. None whatsoever. And yet the father was well pleased with him. 
Remember, this is the beginning of his ministry. He's just starting. We know almost nothing about him before this. Very little recorded in Scripture. And at the beginning, at the start, he, it says not what the Father said as he hung on the cross. This is the baptism. This is the beginning of the ministry, not the end of the ministry. Why did the Father love him? Why was the Father well pleased with him? Well, it was on the basis of sonship. This is my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. It was relational. It was the emphasis of this connection, this love relationship they have as father and son. This is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. There's no mention of any activity, of any performance, of anything at all that he'd done. Not a hint. The father was well pleased not because of performance, but because of a relational connection. And so it is with you and I. This is good news. This is the gospel message. And this is both liberty and incredible freedom. He loves us. God loves you today for this singular purpose, because you're his. He loves you because, because you're his son, because you're his daughter. Most of you here are parents. Can you remember the day your firstborn was placed in your arms? Those very first seconds. Right? You're just meeting them for the first time. I can remember when I held Lisa in my arms. My head exploded. It just it blew me away. It did. It was a life-changing moment for me. Up until that point, I knew that my parents loved me. They'd done a good enough job for me to realize, yep, yeah, mom and dad loved me. And Nadine and I you know, just had a, just a passionate romance and wonderful wedding. I knew that this woman loved me. And that was a very different love than mom and dad. But here I am holding this little girl in my arms. And I'm looking at her. And it's a very different love than my parents' love. It's a very different love than my, than my wife's love. For the first time in my life, I knew what it was to be a father. And to love this child that's part of me. And I'm thinking, this is amazing. I knew in that second, I would die for her. I've been holding her for five seconds and... And if somebody came in there with a gun, they got to shoot me before they get to her. No question, no hesitation. I just met her, and I'm not crazy in love with her. I think I told you the story. After Lisa was born, I'm very excited. I'm running up and down the halls in the maternity ward until one of the nurses finally grabbed me by the shoulder like this, kind of stopped me, and looked me right in the eye and says, Mr. Zawacki, go home. <laughs> it's been an all-night labor and I can remember that drive and thinking, the thought occurred to me. I mean, I just realized I have this new love in me I never had before. I love this little girl. Madly, passionately, crazy kind of love for her. And, and the thought entered my mind, is it possible that my parents love me like I love Lisa? I mean, I knew they loved me. But this, is a, this new love that I have for this little girl, this is a powerful love. They couldn't possibly love me the way I love her. And I thought, maybe they do. And then the, the next obvious step was this. Then what does that mean for God's love? I'm only a man. I'm only a person. 
my parents, they're, they're just normal, regular people, and yet this is an amazing kind of love, and God's love has got to be phenomenally greater than this love. Why did I love Lisa? For the same reason God loves you and me, because we're his. It's the only thing that makes sense for me. Oh, I love that little girl. Hold her close to my chest. My favorite thing, little rabbit trail. When she was a tiny little infant, I used to love to lay on the floor and put her on my chest. And she'd curl her little legs up and her little butt would be in the air. <clears throat> and she'd snuggle her little head on daddy's chest and she'd just fall asleep there. And I wanted her to stay there forever. I can close my eyes and still feel it was amazing. What did I, she couldn't, you realize she couldn't perform. She couldn't do anything. She could eat, she could poop, and she could cry. That's all the kid could do. And she did all those things pretty well. There was no performance. And I loved her extravagantly. And I'm just a man. How do you think God feels about you? Because his capacity to love is just amazing compared to mine. I got a grain of sand compared to the, the sand on all the beaches on the whole planet. That represents God's love. You don't need to perform for him. Just like Lisa didn't need to perform. All Lisa had to do was be. She just had to be there. I just had to hold her. That was it. That was it. You don't have to do anything to have his love. He is crazy about you. He's incredibly passionately in love with you. Oh my goodness. He's not mad at you. He is mad about you. Guys, this is good news. From that perspective, listen to the words of 1 John 3, verse 1. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I've got good news for you. God loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine. He loves you. Now good works, whatever their form, They need to come from a place of total love and absolute acceptance. I know that I'm completely loved by God and he absolutely accepts me. With that settled, with that as a, as a permanent resolve, deep down in my heart, from that place of intimacy with my first love, now good, do whatever good works he inspires you to do. Giving them or attending, or programs, or social justice, or ministry to the lost, the sick, whatever it is. Your good deed of choice. These aren't bad things. I just want us to do it from the right heart, with the right motivation. I want us to do it in freedom and in liberty. I want us to do it because we're, we're so filled with his love for us that it oozes out of us and we can't help but go love on other people in some way, shape, or form. Never should any of these good works come from a place of trying to earn God's love or trying to find some way to think that we somehow deserve it. Never from a place of trying to appease an angry deity. Never from that place. 
If we do that, we distort the truth of the gospel. And the purposes for Jesus coming are in vain. So what's our Monday morning takeaway? This is your Monday morning takeaway. God loves you. God's, God's word today for you is this. You are my son. You are my daughter. Whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. That's what God says to you today. That's the word of Somebody might be sitting here feeling like, oh man, I feel like I got sin just dripping off of me. And that might be so. This is still God's word to you today. You are my son. Or you are my daughter. Whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. That's not the end. That's not the end point. That's not the finish line. That's the starting line. That's the beginning place. This is where we start. He loves you, and he's for you. You never, ever have to earn his love or his acceptance because it's completely already yours. Good works, if anything, are only the overflow of the love he's already poured into you and to me. We never work for salvation. Any good works we do, we work from salvation. And Jesus' life is proof positive. We've been invited into the same relationship that Jesus shares with the, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's that relationship of love and complete acceptance that's relational and not based upon performance. People, this is freedom. It's, it's freedom from a performance-based Christianity. It's freedom from the tyranny of religion. And it's freedom from the institutional controls of men. It's, the truth of this message has transformed me. And I refuse to use those tactics on you. I can't do it. I just, I won't do it. I just won't do it. Let's pray. Oh God, your word tells us that it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Jesus, you said that you came to bind up brokenhearted people and set captives free. Would you do that in our midst today? Some of my friends have, have lived under the tyranny of a performance-based Christianity for far too long. Lord, would you bind up their broken hearts? Would, would you reveal to them the truth of who you are and what you say about them? And oh God, let that truth completely set them free Lord would you set us free from a performance based Christianity and help us to live in the full liberty of love Lord in, in that great and that lavish love your word says that you've poured out on us your sons and daughters Lord I pray that you would make of us a people who live in the place of confidence of assurance of certainty that we're loved by you, that we would be a people who live loved and then out of that, let the overflow, let the fountain come from that place where we would live love. Lord, I pray that you would make of us a people who return to our first love. 
that we would return to you, that we would put you in the highest place. And from that place of having been loved by you, O oh God, that we would effectively, that we would miraculously, powerfully love our neighbors in all different kinds of ways. Oh God, oh God, make that so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If we don't see you again, Nadine and I, we wish you all a very Merry Christmas. Enjoy time with your family. If you're free, please come on out Wednesday night. We will have a, a Christmas Eve service at 6.30. I promise it'll be short. We're going to have some wonderful music. The kids are going to sing. I'll have a very brief message. We'll get you out of here in about an hour. You guys have an awesome day.